Hello, I'm Llewellyn King, the host of White House Chronicle. Thank you for coming along. I'm joined by Lily Gasparello, the co-host and producer of this program, and our special guest today, Bob Deans, Director of Strategic Engagement at the Natural Resources Defense Council. Bob is a former newspaper man. I met him first at the White House, where he was the correspondent for Clark newspapers and, in due course, the uh, president of the News of the uh, White House Correspondents Association. And he has been almost since that time, since that job came to an end, uh, with the National Resources Defense Council. Welcome to the broadcast, Bob. What do you do for the council? Well, I basically, Llewellyn, try to explain the work of our terrific scientists, our policymakers, uh, and our attorneys who do three things at the NRDC, Llewellyn. They tell the truth about what's happened to the environment. They push for the solutions we need and they use our laws and courts to hold our polluters to account. So I try to explain that to the public as best well, I can. If we explaining to the public, something worth explaining is why do we have a drought in the West? Are there fixes? It seems to have come up and hit people on the side of the head and like the proverbial two by four. No question, Llewellyn. The West is now experiencing its worst drought in at least 400 years. Only once in the past 1,200 years has what we now call the American Southwest been this dry, Llewellyn. And of course, it is, and droughts come and go, but in the, the stage it's playing out on now is one of a changing climate in which the Earth is getting warmer, about two degrees Fahrenheit warmer than we were just a century ago. And the West is getting drier. And so we are seeing from Arizona all the way up to Portland, Oregon, to Washington State, we're seeing these extraordinary fires uh, in Oregon. The bootleg forest fire now is burning 1,100 acres every hour. Llewellyn, for just comparison, that's like a fire burning through Central Park every 45 minutes. Uh, we're seeing farmers having to fallow their crops, cattlemen having to thin their herds, sell their cattle early because they simply can't afford to buy the feed to feed them anymore. And of course, we lost more than 200 people to heat waves just in Oregon and Washington State last month. The hottest June on record for the United States, Llewellyn. This is very serious. Uh, are there fixes? Uh, can we do something to remediate the situation? There, there are two things we need to do. First of all, we need to deal with the cause. We need, the science is very clear on this. We need to cut the dangerous carbon pollution from burning fossil fuels in half by 2030 and stop adding it to the atmosphere altogether by 2050 if we're to have a chance of not making these kinds of things worse. Meanwhile, we need to deal with the consequences, and that's going to be a real challenge in the West, Llewellyn. You're not suggesting if we cut the consumption of fossil fuels that the rains will return axiomatically to the no, Southwest. Sir. Climate change is not something you quickly reverse. Um, the carbon dioxide we've put into the atmosphere is going to be there for hundreds of years. And let me just give a, an example. Since 1980, Llewellyn, we have burned more coal, oil, and gas than in all of history up to then combined. 
it has increased the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere by 25%. And it is in causing these enormous changes, the results we're seeing all around us. What used to be talked about in, in the lab or as computer models, we're now seeing on our television sets and our newspapers and out the kitchen window. Just recently, uh, Democrats outlined far-reaching climate measures as part of the $3.5 trillion uh, budget deal. But they face a lot of hurdles. Um, they face political hurdles. They face technical hurdles. Um, they face people hurdles. Just, I wonder if you might address some of those. Sure. You're talking, Linda, of course, about the Build Back Better agenda that yes. President Biden has outlined. And that is before Congress now. This is a plan to create millions of jobs across the country, including for people who want to join a union. It's a plan to create, make our communities healthier, to roll back climate change. And it's a plan to strike a blow for equity in this country because we know it's the low-income communities and people of color who are on the front lines of this climate hazard and hard harm. They're paying the highest price for it proportionately, and that needs to end. So this is a plan to do all of that, to make us more prosperous, more competitive, and particularly in the fast-growing global market for clean energy, which we know is going to attract 30 trillion dollars in global investment over just the next two decades. American workers and companies need to be winners. That's what this Build Back Better plan is all about. What are the sticking points right now for, for Democrats? And um, you can imagine the ones that are there for uh, Republicans, but you might, you might mention that too. And also the fact that you've got the Senate and the House that are sort of at odds about how far this goes or how far it doesn't go. Uh, the House would like would like much broader climate measures than the Senate is actually offering. Sure, and these are matters of scale in, in some cases, and we, we hope they'll be reconciled in the coming days, Linda. But for example, uh, one of the sticking points is how do we, uh, how much money are we going to provide? How much are we going to invest to uh, replace those lead pipes and lead service lines that lead into our homes. I mean, there are something like 10 million homes across this country that are still getting drinking water through aging lead pipes. It's dangerous. It's horrible for children. They need to be replaced. And right now, the money in the infrastructure package would get us about a third of the way there. Linda, how do you tell two-thirds of our children you're just not part of the fix? That's not fair. That needs to be, needs to be plussed up. If we don't get everything that you're talking about, and it, it, it's a large, uh, what is necessary? What is going to really help begin a change in the deterioration of climate? And is it indeed possible to correct the climate at this point? There's some climate change is natural. It's not all man-made. Uh, uh, 300 years ago, the Thames in London used to freeze so solid that uh, they roasted balls and had parties and people lived on it for three months. It was fine. Um, obviously that hasn't happened in the last hundred years uh, or longer. That was more of a natural change. You can't really blame that change on the industrial revolution. How do you balance what might've happened anyway with what is man-made? Well, the scientists who study this, the, the people at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, the people at the National 
of Aeronautics and Space, and Space Administration, the people at the National Academies of Science, you know, these are, are foundational, the people who are doing the foundational climate work, they know the difference between what you just referred to as natural variability and what we're seeing as a consequence of having increased the carbon dioxide level in the atmosphere 25% in just the last 40 years. So that's what this is about. No question what we need to do about it, Luella, and no question we can do it. Um, what the Build Back Better plan does call for a couple of things. Number one, cleaning up our dirty power plants, because that's about a third of the problem here in this country. That's roughly a third of our carbon footprint. So how do you do that? Well, you increase efficiency for one thing. Um, our economy has grown something like 25% in the past couple of decades, while our energy electricity use is only up about 4%. That's because of efficiency. We need to continue to invest in that. We need to invest in high-tech manufacturing in a way that enables us to do more with less waste. And we need to get more clean power from the wind and sun. Right now, we're getting about 10% of our power from the wind and sun, Llewellyn. But guess what? Over just the past decade, that has increased fourfold. And at the same time, the price of wind power has plummeted 70%. The price of solar power is down 90% in just a decade. We need to move forward with investments in that. And finally, we need to shore up our aging power grid and storage system. That means better batteries, uh, investing in our transmission system, our grid system, so that it's more reliable and it accommodates this shift to clean energy. We can get there. You have a lot of emphasis in your statements on utilities, but they're not the only source. You did not mention nuclear, which is a providing um, about 20% clean, and the environmental movement of which you are a spokesman has opposed nuclear almost ruthlessly up to this point in time. So, you know, virtue has been late to arrive to some parts of the environmental movement. Well, that's no question, but uh, there are two, there are two, there's a two word answer to that right now, Plant Vogel. Uh, Plant Vogel in Georgia, I covered it as a, the original Plant Vogel construction as a young reporter many, I knew, many years I ago. I knew Vogel himself. I interviewed him. Okay. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, as you know, they're building two new nuclear reactors at Plant Vogel, the only new nuclear reactors built in this country in 30 years. It right now is $19 billion over budget. We're looking yeah, but at- Bob, 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 that's a bit of a non sequitur. What we are doing is closing down very effectively operating nuclear power plants. We are taking clean electricity out of the mix and sometimes substituting it with natural gas. The last one to go was uh, just outside of New York City. Uh, I mean, you can't blame this on the high cost of a new plant when you're prematurely closing old plants and not picking up much of a stink about it, or at least I haven't, it hasn't reached my nostrils. Well, you're right. Some of these plants are quite old. Some of them are, you know, kind of a chitty chitty bang bang operation. We don't want to take a chance with nuclear safety on an aging plant. No, but, I don't think that's been proved at all. These plants are basically rebuilt as they go, and they're subject to severe uh, regulation. I, I will give you a quote, uh, an example. I, for example, wonder if you can really tell us what's going to happen to a windmill in 25 years. Bob, I'm thinking just going back to the White House, which you and I both covered uh, instead of Llewellyn, and the president's agenda is really such a huge one when it involves climate. And I must admit that 
what I get out of the White House right now is a lot of attention being paid to voting rights. Everybody's on the road talking about voting rights, which are really, really important. But we're closing in now on not only legislation in Congress that has to do with his agenda, but also we're closing in on a really, really important date for the climate, which is the November COP26 meeting that's going to be held in Scotland. Don't you think it's about time we see the White House pushing more on the climate part of the agenda in order to have an you know, you know, important work done before everybody goes off to the climate meeting in Paris, in uh, sorry, in uh, in Glasgow. Scotland, yeah, in Glasgow. Sure, absolutely, it's a good point, Linda. And a couple of points I would make: number one, voting rights are tied directly to a progressive environmental agenda because when we we know right now that more than six in ten Americans understand that climate change is a problem and they expect the government to do more about it. Why hasn't that happened? Uh, well, look at the makeup of the Congress. Look at look at who was controlling the Senate up until a very few months ago. And so we have got to ensure the rights of every American to stand up, be heard, have their vote counted. That's what democracy is all about. To the agenda piece, you're absolutely right. We're going to move into uh, climate week at the United Nations uh, in September, and that is going to tee up a several weeks period where we're leaning into Glasgow. Glasgow is very important. This is the follow-up to that landmark 2015 Paris Climate Agreement where 196 countries around the world came together. Linda, that was a triumph of American leadership, doing what's best for us here at home, and we get the whole world on board. What's absolutely imperative is that President uh, Biden's representatives are able to go to Glasgow and say to them, our Congress has approved two packages here that together are going to help us transform our entire system into clean energy so that we are cutting our fossil fuel emissions in half by 2030 and not adding them to the atmosphere at all by 2050, that we're on the road to 100% clean electricity by 2035. That's the leadership it's going to take to get the other countries to raise their ambitions so that for the next five years of this Paris Climate Agreement, we emerge from Glasgow with strong commitments around the world. I was looking at a table um, just yesterday, which showed relative pollution. And of course, the contribution from Asia far exceeds that of Western Europe or the United or North America. Um, it, there's a huge imbalance there. Um, and I'm just so glad you mentioned Asia, because we have to bring them along. It's rather more important that we bring them along than we do anything here. But nonetheless, we, we ought to do both. Um, let's go back to the drought, to what's going on right now with these terrible pictures. Look at this one of Lake Mead. It shows how far it is down. Uh, you were laying out earlier in the broadcast a, a, a story of death and destruction on farms. Uh, cattle herds being culled, uh, people losing their jobs, the work terminated, the possibility of their futures terminated. Um, what can we do? What will this do to us permanently? Will it give us an environmental ethic that we haven't had heretofore? And how will we adjust to a, a large amount of food that was being grown in 
California in particular, which is not going to be coming east because it's not growing. How are we going to adjust to the, um, re, uh, uh, the reassessment of California as a place to live in? It's the world's seventh largest economy, I think, and it's in considerable trouble. And what do you think of Pacific Gas and Electric talking for the first time of undergrounding major power lines? Uh, this is a lot and a lot of expense, but how are we going to take care of people this year, next year, and the year after that, who have lost their livelihoods because of climate change? Yeah, it's a great question, Llewellyn. And I would start by saying uh, that a lot of the wildfires that have started out there, particularly in California, have been the result of a power line spark. And so putting some of those power lines underground um, it, is, is one way to go, certainly. Um, I think that some of our first uh, environmentalists here in this country, Llewellyn, are some of those very farmers and ranchers we were talking about. These people who live off the land, uh, many of them are the best in the world at taking care of their land. I've been out there and talked to some of the ranchers in, in Colorado and some of the corn growers and wheat growers in Kansas. And you see that they're, they're trying to shift to drought-resistant varieties where they can. They're trying to grow pasture in native grasses that are inherently resistant to drought. That's one thing. Some of the farmers are using irrigation systems, drip irrigation uh, that you're familiar with, Llewellyn, that do not waste any water. Sometimes they apply the water right to the roots of their produce underground so there's no evaporation. Um, that's very important. But the reality right now is it just does not seem to be enough water to go around. You're robbing from Peter to pay Paul. You're, you're diverting water that the salmon need to survive to keep an almond orchard alive in Southern California. We're seeing almond growers bulldozing orchards that are very valuable. Uh, we're seeing the LA Times saying the state just can't support the vineyards and orchards that it has right now. So you're going to see more, more uh, property going fallow, more of this valuable agricultural land. It just doesn't have enough water. But you're also going to have to see some urban changes. And Los Angeles has been in the lead in some ways in, uh, with recycling, reusing water. That is going to have to happen. There just isn't enough water in the region to support the population that there is now. And so these changes are going to have to be made, just as you alluded to, Llewellyn. Linda. Um, um, Natural Resources Defense Council follows what happens in state legislatures. And I'm wondering what you're seeing in these highly affected drought states on, on, at the state level that give some some you know, some feeling of optimism about, about the states being able to, to handle what's coming at them. The big picture on climate is very encouraging, Linda. I think there are 29 states around the country that have renewable power standards in place. These are actual targets that they've set for getting renewable power. So the big picture is there. What the states are really struggling with are the resources to adapt to what climate change is imposing on them, whether that's rising seas along the Atlantic seaboard or these horrendous wildfires that are devastating communities out west or the drought that's just making it almost impossible for that third generation farmer to think about passing the family farm down to their children. And so the resources to do that are 
are what, what we're struggling with right now. And that's part of what the Build Back Better program is, is designed to address, is to help provide the resources for these states and cities to do what they need to do to protect their people, get us on the way so that we are able to cope better with these devastating consequences that are here upon us now. Have you done any analysis of uh, the impact of desalination? A lot of people are talking about using seawater, getting the salt out of it. Prima facie, that sounds like a wonderful thing, but it has an environmental consequence, which is what you do with the salt. Does it ever? And we were ahead of the game on that, uh, Llewellyn. We opposed a giant plan for a Mitsubishi desalinization plant down in Baja, Mexico 30 years ago, assembled an international group of people because this would have just devastated uh, one of the last uh, mating grounds of an important whale along the Pacific. And uh, we stood up to, the, up to Mitsubishi, we got that plant shut down before it was ever built. Uh, but the desalinization plants can have a devastating impact because they actually take the seawater, they concentrate the salt and other chemicals from the water, and then they have to dump this concentrate somewhere. They typically do it back in a lagoon, and it just turns the ocean floor there into a desert. Uh, that's intolerable. That's not a solution. Well, a solution may come, but at the moment it looks very difficult. I might say that there was another grand scheme uh, to make fresh water off the California coast, and it was called Balser Island, and it was going to be a nuclear plant, uh, a nuclear island. There were going to be quite a bunch of plants, but in those days, um, and this would not probably be used uh, you know, using membranes, but a, <clears throat> an evaporative process with the heat, but Nobody looked at the salt in those days. The salt problem wasn't comprehended initially. People thought it just goes back in the ocean. And we were less sensitive to the health of the ocean then than we are now. Um, where do we go from here as a general, I mentioned a little while back, an ethic. We got one environmental ethic in 1962 uh, <clears throat> with Rachel Carson's fabulous book. Um, has it withered or is the environmental ethic alive and is the argument over the solutions as you and i might not agree totally on nuclear or something is the ethic there or is it the solutions that are, uh, are contending with each other Llewellyn, i think you have to begin with the ethic and i think what more and more people are coming around to realizing is that fossil fuels did an enormous amount to, they fueled the industrialization of the world. They changed the world, miracle fuels in many ways. But there are just cleaner, smarter ways to power our future. We just can no longer afford to be dumping this carbon pollution into the atmosphere and causing climate chaos to get worse and worse and leave our children with a climate catastrophe. I think that's the number one piece of the ethic. Number two is that this is part of the equity challenge that we face in this country with people of color paying a disproportionate price for all kinds of environmental damage and danger, and specifically climate damage and danger, and what comes with producing and burning fossil fuels. And number three, as you said, there are solutions. There are better ways to do this. No free country, no free people anywhere, Llewellyn, is ever stuck with a bad habit that does more harm than good. We're not stuck with fossil fuels, and neither are our children. Bob, I wonder if you might talk a little bit about um, your impression of how the drought has been covered. 
when I go about talking to people on the sidewalk, you know, in my everyday life about the drought, and I live on the East Coast, obviously, um, they don't seem to be all that concerned. Uh, Llewellyn has spoken to people in Texas. He does a webinar on, on Wednesdays, and they're in the tech business, and they don't seem to be that concerned. Where is the failure here? Are we failing in the press to really get people engaged in this? Um, it somehow, has it been, has the whole issue of drought become politicized so that the drought is somehow attached, you know, to uh, the Biden administration versus the previous Trump administration? Uh, what's happening here? Why are people not really upset about this. I'd like to add a rider to Linda's question, Bob, and that okay. is, has the whole media become politicized? Is there no <laughs> national news beyond politics, which seems to be uh, such a preoccupation uh, of our trade? Well, Llewellyn, I will, I will make a, a brief observation, which is that the um, attention the public now pays to politics is inversely proportionate to the public's understanding of how government works and should work. It's, it's been an odd thing to watch people who understand less and less about policy and process and the wheels of governance and even the foundational right to vote, um, taking a keen interest in politics, but throwing aside all the substance and meaning of it. That's uh, not going to sustain us as a democracy. That is a dangerous and disturbing trend. Um, to the drought story, I do think um, the media can do a better job. I mean, if you just think of this in a simple way, Linda, just think about fire, fish, food. I mean, if you think about what's happening to these wildfires, um, we already there's something like 80 major fires, 21,000 firefighters are battling right now, and those fires alone have already torched enough land in this country to cover the entire state of Delaware. And we're running ahead of where we were this time last year. And remember last year's devastating fires torched enough land to cover half the state of South Carolina. This, the magnitude of the fires is horrible. Talk about fish. Uh, the salmon population, we're losing hundreds of thousands of spawning salmon as we speak. The salmon are dying from the San Joaquin Delta outside of Sacramento all the way up to the Columbia River because the waters are too warm to sustain life for these fish. And if you think about food, all of our food prices are going to be going up. Beef prices are, have already gone up. Salmon prices, of course, have gone up because people are worried that the, about the collapse in salmon populations. But any, everything from cherries to wheat uh, are suffering from this. And when the farmers hurt, and there's less food, we're all gonna pay a price. That's a selfish way of looking at it. But these connect to our everyday life, to this epic Western drought we're facing right now. And again, you can't emphasize enough the, what we now call the Southwestern America, uh, United States has only been this dry one other time in 1200 years. It's been an honor and a pleasure to have you on the broadcast and keep up the good work. Meanwhile, if you go out and if you're going to enjoy the summer in a place that's not full of smoke, do that, but do remember to put on your mask. 
the pandemic is also still with us. Cheers. White House Chronicle is available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you listen. We are there.